I will just say, you have to start, Paul started his interest not when he was 15, as we all thought, but uh, in 1982. And that uh, is an interest that never left him and has been working on the typography and more recently on the text and textual issues relating to the Gutenberg Bible. And I won't say any more and leave the word to Paul. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, in fact, I now work um, in Princeton. I have a wonderful colleague recently arrived, Eric White, who is um, more or less as um, caught up in the Gutenberg Bible as I am. And so I feel sure that in the last year and a half, on any day on the Princeton campus, when we've both been there, there hasn't been a day when the Gutenberg Bible hasn't been mentioned in some form or another. Uh, and so it's probably a heavier concentration of sort of just talking about this one particular edition um, than maybe ever existed before. Thirty years ago, in 1987, I published a study called The Text of the Gutenberg Bible uh, as part of a collection of essays from an Italian conference. And the main part of this, after a few introductory pages, uh, leading up to the Gutenberg Bible was a study of the Bible's influence on subsequent printed editions, such as the 36-line Bible, the 1462 Bible of Fust and Schiffer. The Gutenberg Bible was typeset in four parallel composition units, began that way, beginning respectively with Genesis and two prologues preceding it, First uh, Samuel, Proverbs and First Maccabees, again in each case with a preceding prologue. And these divide the full Bible into four nearly equal sections. In that Bible shop, after maybe a month or so of composition and printing, let's just say early 1454, the edition size of the Bible was increased. And so in all four of these units, the pages that had already been printed in the shorter run had to be set again later to print off the additional necessary pages for the larger run. Um, and again, this is a shortened version of the complications of this. This entailed partial or full resettings uh, in 10 different choirs of the book. Naturally, in the resettings, there are textual variants, both intentional and accidental. Using these variants as keys, I was able to identify five and only five incunable editions whose compositors used the Gutenberg Bible as their setting copy and to specify the setting profile of those duplicate setting, duplicate setting choirs for each of the five source Bibles. And each one of those five has a different profile, that is a different mixture of choirs having first and or second settings represented in them. The Gutenberg Bible at Cambridge was one of those setting copies actually surviving into the present, uh, uh, a use for a 1469 Strasbourg edition. And its leaves contain a full run of compositors' markings, as well as dozens of marginal variants which the compositors brought into their text. And again, that's the short version of a pretty complicated situation. Fair enough. That a few years ago, the Virginia Bibliographical Society proposed reprinting a collection of my essays on early Mainz printing. 
And when I reread this particular article, I felt very unsatisfied, even irritated by it. Uh, not its central argument, but by those four introductory pages, which felt thin. Also, they contain a very embarrassing misstatement about the common Bible apparatus, the interpretations of Hebrew names. And I realized on rereading, I did less than justice to a very fine uh, scholar of the Vulgate and Old Latin Bible, Heinrich Schneider. And in some, the whole, those whole, the whole thing struck me as both overly confident and poorly supported. The crux of my self-discovered problem was where I referred to the 13th century Bible form known as the Paris Bible or Paris Vulgate. And I wrote, the Gutenberg Bible represents in shape and text this class of Vulgate. And given the degree to which the Paris Vulgate represented the standard, it would indeed have been surprising if some other character of text had been chosen, had, had formed the exemplar of the Gutenberg Bible. And so now, many years later, I asked myself, how do you know this? My attempts at remedying my ignorance have since consumed hundreds of hours and have entailed expanding that not overly lengthy article into what will be a separate monograph. The Paris Bible is a complex but necessary concept in the history of the Vulgate Bible. It refers to a substantial number of Bibles written in Paris about 1230 onward, and eventually elsewhere, such as Bologna, uh, in the 13th, early 14th centuries, though very rarely in England. These share many textual readings, uh, new, inauthentic readings, not present in the older Vulgate tradition, or apparently not present. And also, uh, they also present the books of the Bible in a uniform order, with a uniform set of prologues, and uh, essentially uniform chapter divisions. Um, all of which are topics in themselves. Uh, and all these are features that, that are highly variable in pre-13th century uh, Bible manuscripts. Um, regarding the characteristics, new readings of the Paris Bible, these are identified in the textual apparatus of the Rome Vulgate, uh, the um, edition uh, of the Old Testament, 19 started to be published in 1926, ended in 1995, in 18 volumes, I believe. And there the Paris Bible is recorded under the siglum Omega, as represented by three manuscripts, two in the Bibliothèque Nationale, Omega J, as they call it, Omega S, and also Omega M. As it happens, Omega M, uh, Mazarin Manuscript 5, is not a Paris Bible at all, but rather an English Vulgate written at Canterbury probably about 1220 and no later than 1231. Thus, the Rome Vulgate apparatus conflates under its omega symbol two chronologically and spatially separated traditions. But it is all the more revealing for that. One simply has to keep in mind that omega M readings precede uh, uh, omega S and J readings and were written in a different place. A 1954 monograph by Heinrich Schneider, whom I've just mentioned, uh, presents a clear overview with dozens of examples of characteristic Paris Bible readings. Uh, he discusses uh, the nature of these readings, sort of the th more or less thought behind them, why they're there. And on that topic, uh, Schneider's study is the locus classicus. It's by far the best analysis. 
which maybe isn't even known to people who spend a lot of time with the Paris Bible because its title was the text of the Gutenberg Bible. Um, as many of you know, the Rome Vulgate indeed, or as I said, covers only the Old Testament. The New Testament, uh, what we call the Oxford Vulgate of John Wordsworth, H.G. White, and others, unfortunately does not include does not include any Paris Bible among the many uh, numerous manuscripts cited in its apparatus. And that's because the project started in the 1880s when the concept, the uh, realization of the existence of something one could call a Paris Bible was just beginning to form by a couple of scholars in France. Um, and so the Paris Bible text of the New Testament is, uh, remains uncharted territory. Uh, it could be charted, it simply hasn't been done. The Paris Bible is a complicated concept because it wraps up two disparate elements, text and shape. In principle, a Vulgate Bible could be rich in Paris Bible readings yet have a different shape, that is a different order of texts and or variants in the selection of prologues. Um, and then vice versa, and this is not infrequent uh, in later medieval Bibles. A Bible may have much the shape of a Paris Bible as to order of text and selection of prologues, yet still have few characteristic Paris Bible readings. Thus, if we had a large group, or say all late medieval Vulgate Bibles, and we wanted to put them into two boxes, in one labeled Paris Bible, and the other labeled not Paris Bible, we would have to hesitate repeatedly and feel unconfident in our result. Um, of course, one could add a third box labeled question mark, and I think at the end of this notional exercise, that box would contain more Bibles than the other two. And even a closer examination, even if we look very closely at those, we would have to remain unconfident because there is no measuring stick, um, because it's both shape and text how do you balance, say, the absence of a characteristic Paris Bible reading at Leviticus 5.11 against the presence of a Paris Bible prologue to Maccabees, where it has two distinct prologues, uh, um, which were really introduced in the Paris Bible. Well, there is no rational way to do this. So let's consider first Bible structure, and this is where the handout, if you have have it is um, um, useful. Uh, and um, it has a page one, Paris Bible, Gutenberg Bible, and then a page two, the um, Fratres Bible, or the uh, Brethren of the Common Life at Butzbach. Um, the Vulgate Bible of any time, but say as we have it represented in a 13th century Paris Bible, is an unusually complex assemblage of texts, originally composed in Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, at various times and places, then translated into Latin at other times and places, and of course not only by Jerome, and then distributed among these texts are other texts, a collection of, well, for the Paris Bible, more than 60 prologues, many by Jerome, many other pre-Jerome, others post-Jerome, and then, as you find them in Finnish Bibles, titulae and rubrics, which themselves may have complicated histories of time and place of development, and may form families. The sequential combination of all these, if you just sort of had that text, could be written as a single string of characters. 
But in this form, even for allowing, say, every arbitrarily 50 characters uh, uh, to be broken into a distinct line, this string Bible, as we may picture it, would be almost unusable. Um, whether one long string or thousands of 50 character strings. Um, for navigation and orientation, one needs a structure, a varied layout on a series of pages. One must be able visually to separate one text from another and subordinate one to another. By such means as titling, headlines, uh, and hierarchy of initials, which is critical, and lengthy texts are commonly subdivided into chapters, so large a topic as concerns the Paris Bible that I won't really discuss it at all. Nor will I discuss the next lower form of subdivision, that provided by punctuation, except to note um, that the Gutenberg Bible has a highly regularized and unambiguous punctuation, more exact than the great majority of handwritten Vulgates. In fact, one could say that the regularity and rationale of punctuation in the Gutenberg Bible is one of its most novel features, and I think we have to think of it as an editorial feature, that is one that doesn't pop directly out of the exemplar or exemplars. It's useful to look at the structure of the Vulgate Bible in terms of a notional spine, which can be defined in two different ways, one the reverse of the other. We could picture the Bible as being constructed of the biblical books in a fixed order, as if each book was a numbered vertebra, and the prologues as being appendages to particular vertebrae. You know, in vertebra seven, there would be prologue X hooked onto it. Um, or, and this is the viewpoint I prefer and is shown in your handbook, in your handout, we can picture the spine as being constructed of a series of prologues in a fixed order to which are attached the biblical books. Uh, and all this, although this seems like the tail wagging the dog, I've personally found it useful to organize Bibles according to this latter model. The prologues, in a sense, are more definitive. They come first, that is, precede the biblical texts, uh, in just a few Bibles, there are one or two prefaces, a particularly a rather rare one connected with Job, that sometimes follow rather than precede the text. If you know what the prologues are, you know automatically, with very rare exceptions, what the order of the books is. You don't even have to write down the names of the books. If you know what the prologues are, you know what the books are. For instance, on your handout, um, under Paris Bible, those prologues labeled K1 and K2, we're just treating them as notional things, we're not going into their history, are always followed by the Pentateuch. And that prologue K3 is always followed by Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, uh, K4 by the four books of Kings, and so forth. So the Paris Bible has, by this way of visualizing it, 15 vertebrae, and to these are attached in fixed order 74 biblical books if I count it correctly. The 15 vertebrae, uh, each defined by a preliminary prologue, give you automatically, by consequence, the order of the biblical books. Uh, and, you know, I will say, having used this formula on, well, several hundred, maybe 300 Bibles of all periods, from the Codex Amiatinus to incunables of the 1490s, and after making comparisons with many dozens of other contents descriptions of Bibles, as found in many catalogs, 
many languages, many libraries. Um, I do believe this is the most comprehensive and efficient way to record the contents of the Vulgate Bible. Uh, and so, you know, more or less my assertion is the way the handout is, is the way any Bible should be described as to contents and sequence. Uh, I, I do believe this is the way to do it. If you look at the first page of the handout, you'll note that all the Paris prologues are indicated by K numbers, which many people recognize, while those of the Gutenberg Bible are indicated by a combination of K and S numbers. And the S represents the prologue numbers in Franz Stegmuller's Repertorium Biblicum of 1950, uh, an extensive but not comprehensive listing. Uh, on just a few of those prologues, he gave them two numbers wrongly and rather confusingly because of very minor differences in their incubates. Uh, then the K, it's a great Oxford connection, represents the prologue numbers of the Paris Bible specifically is laid out in a table printed in each volume of Neil Kerr's Medieval Manuscripts in British Libraries. And each K or Kerr number has a corresponding S or Stegmuller number because that's how he uh, 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 identified them or organized them. So the K1 is the same as S284, K64 the last as S839, which tells you in fact that Stegmuller uh, lists more than 550 sort of possible prologues in the Vulgate Bible. These Kerr numbers are are applicable to and useful for Vulgate Bibles of any period, and I regret that they are not more widely used. Even Kerr did not use them in his descriptions of more than a hundred Vulgate Bibles in his uh, manuscripts in British libraries. He used only the Stegmuller numbers. Um, I really wish somebody had said to him, use your own numbers instead where applicable. Um, for instance, uh, we can say that the early 8th century Northumbrian Codex Amiatinus the earliest surviving full Vulgate Bible contains 34 Kerr prologues and 16 non-Kerr, that is, in Stegmuller, not in the Paris Bible prologues. And that statement alone gives us just the beginning of an historical context for those Paris Bible prologues, only a few of which were newcomers in the 13th century. Now the Kerr prologue numbers need three modifications. First, there are two places, and this sort of descends from Stegmuller. Kerr used two numbers combined to define what historically is, in fact, a single preface. One of those, uh, and you'll see it on your um, uh, on your handout, is he has there he has K ten plus eleven, and um, before Esther, and that's really a single prologue with a little bit of historical explanation. And then um, in the Minor Prophets, K twenty nine and thirty. Um, uh, uh, preceding Obadiah, and again, historically, that is a single text. Uh, it was really a mistake of uh, Stegmuller Miller to give it uh, two separate numbers and then Kerr took, those over, uh, took them over. And another little sort of mini complication in the Kerr list, uh, again within the Minor Prophets, is that K34 preceding Nahum uh, now, the incipit and explicit of this prologue in, in Stegmuller define what we can call the long, which is the original form of the prologue. And in the Rome Vulgate, uh, in the beginning, in the prefatory material, this full prologue 
uh, as printed takes up 30 lines. But in the Paris Bible, and this is regular for the Paris Bible, this prologue is always of half length, just the first half of it, consisting of the first 15 lines only as printed in the Roman Vulgate. Thus, for any Bible, you have to specify whether, when you find K34, you can't just say that it's K34, you have to uh, uh, define whether it's K34 short, as in the Paris Bible, or long, as, for instance, in virtually all pre-13th century Bibles. Um, then the third complication is two prologue numbers have to be added to Kerr. They're, they're missing because Stegmuller, Kerr's source, did not give them special numbers. Um, and uh, the first of these is the prologue to Ecclesiasticus, um, uh, which you'll find um, after Proverbs in the Proverbs uh, paragraph. Um, uh, the um, prologue to Ecclesiasticus proper and, and um, it's uh, the oldest uh, textually of the prologues in the Bible being the um, prologue of uh, the uh, translator of Ecclesiasticus into Greek uh, who at least represents himself as the grandson of the author of Ecclesiasticus Ecclesiasticus Jesus son of Sirach and um, Almost all Bibles formally separate this prologue from Ecclesiasticus proper, and if they leave it out, that has a historical interest of its own. And the second prologue to be added is interesting because like K, like the short form of K34, Pernaeum, it is an earmark of the Paris Bible. Um, now here I think we want a slide, which should be the beginning of the Oh, yeah, well, let me just back up just a little bit. There are two slides in a row here, but this is just um, talking about the structure, uh, thinking about the structure of the Bible is that um, there is a hierarchy. And hierarchy is always the way to think about um, representation of the text, well, personally in modern books, um, where, for instance, the prologue to Tobit is given an initial space of four lines in the Gutenberg Bible uh, and the uh, book proper of six lines. And so here we have the Gutenberg Bible on the left. We see the structure copied in the Fust and Schiffer Bible, which use the Gutenberg Bible as an exemplar. If we go to the next slide, um, we see it also in the um, uh, Mentelin Latin Bible, first book printed in Strasbourg, not after 1460. And this is in the um, uh, first of Eggestein's Bibles, not unfortunately a very handsome copy. Uh, so the, not only the text, but the uh, structure uh, is an element which transmits. Now, if we go to the next slide, um, here is the, uh, we see very nicely brought out the um, distinctive, a distinctive earmark of the Paris Bible, and that is that the first four verses of Luke, which indeed are prefatory, are laid out like a prologue, distinct from Luke verse 5 onward, which is treated as the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And here is a Paris Bible, which is a nice example, because Luke 1, 1 through 4, quidum, uh, uh, is um, so thought of as so separate that it's put in front of the traditional prologue that follows, and then you get Luke 
one one to four list column, loop five list column, and it says intricate Lucas Evangelista. So it really was thought of as something else. It was sort of Luke, but it wasn't quite Luke, and it didn't have to stay with Luke, uh, with the absolute beginning of Luke. So if we go to the next slide, we see the treatment in the um, Gutenberg Bible, and you see there's slight confusion here. The traditional prologue begins in the left column, the ponyam, quidum, etc. Uh, Luke 1 through 4 is separated very distinctly from Luke 5, Fuit, Medievus, Herodus, Herodus, Regus. Um, but they were a little confused because here you have the sixth line initial, which is um, appropriate to the beginning of a book, and then you have a four line initial for what is treated as the beginning of Luke. And so they've kind of swapped around the, um, and it's sort of a little bit of indecisiveness there about what is our hierarchy. And let's see, if we go to, um, uh, yes, in the Mentalin Bible, you see copied from the Gutenberg Bible, and again, the same kind of disparity in what is prologue and what is book proper in terms of the heart of the initial hierarchy. Uh, this because of the Gutenberg Bible, uh, I mean, this became standard for all printing of Bibles in the 15th century, except if we go to the next slide. Now, this is um, not a good quality slide, but this is a Bible premium Piacenza 1475, extremely rare. I, no copy has been on the market since the 1920s, and I suppose none will come on the market, but it is one of two incunable uh, uh, Bibles that were set from manuscript exemplars. Uh, the other printed in Vicenza the following year from different exemplars. And this is entirely outside the Paris Bible tradition. And it begins Luke, where Luke begins with verse 1. Now, if, again, if you look at your handout, if you look at um, Psalms, Paris Bible versus uh, Gutenberg Bible, a characteristic of the Paris Bible was that there is no prologue to Psalms. The Gutenberg Bible added one, and that's S430. And then the other um, one to note, the variant, is if you go to Matthew, you see that highlighted prologue in the Gutenberg Bible, S595, uh, which is not in the Paris Bible. Uh, in, in these cases, the Gutenberg Bible, in essence, goes back long before the Paris Bible to the most ancient traditions, because these are authentic prologues by Jerome. The Psalms prologue is the one that accompanied his so-called hexaplar psalms, based on the um, several Greek versions that he found in parallel columns, arranged in parallel columns in the um, uh, hexapla, as it's called, compiled by Origen. And because this version became, in the Carolingian age, uh, incorporated into the Vulgate Bible as the standard, it's uh, commonly but anachronistically called the Gallican Psalter. And then the Gospels prologue, Noam Opus, dedicated to Pope Damasus in the mid-380s, marked the very beginning of Jerome's scholarly engagement with the text of the Latin Bible, that is where he 
uh, explains how he how he revised the gospel specifically. And um, two other variants uh, between the Paris Bible and the Gutenberg Bible are conspicuous. Uh, if you look at the twelve minor prophets, you'll see that. Um, uh, in the Paris Bible, we have that prologue called K-22, which is um, the Jerome's own um, uh, prologue to the Minor Prophets treated as a single book, and so published uh, as a single book by Jerome or by his um, supporters. Whereas in the Gutenberg Bible, you see all those following prefatory prologues to the individual uh, Minor Prophets are lacking. and. Um, this is an interesting case because although I simply assert it and not um, explain in full, this is a case where I think we can be pretty confident that um, uh, the Gutenberg Bible's exemplar did have prologues before the Minor Prophets. Maybe not precisely the set of the Paris Bible, but there were dozens of possible prologues to the Minor Prophets, and it probably had some substantial selection of them. Uh, and what I believe happened uh, is that um, consciously they decided to omit them to save pages. And it's not because of having to save pages in the extent of the entire book. It's because they were getting to the end of the Minor Prophets, which if you remember immensely what I said at the, just precisely what I said very early on, that's the end of a composition unit. And first Maccabees starts this, uh, another composition unit. Um, they were in the final choir of 10 leaves. And um, uh, at that point, a choir of 10 leaves wouldn't allow minor prophets uh, and prologues. To be printed in space available, two times 42 columns, times 20 pages. Um, and uh, one would have had to supply extra leaves, maybe six, maybe seven, which don't, it doesn't quite even work for inserting leaves into a choir. You, uh, no other place in the Gutenberg Bible would have more than a single inserted leaf. Um, you might have had a, maybe a choir of four leaves, just two sheets, and that's a little awkward also. So I think it was an editorial decision to leave them out. Um, and then by contrast, the Paris Bible has only a single prologue, K63, to the um, canonical epistles right above uh, Apocalypse. Uh, and um, K63, um, has an interest of its own because it's pseudo-Jerome. I mean, this is one of the few prologues that um, post-Jerome actually was intended to represent itself as Jerome's own composition. Uh, and so it's very early, but it's um, inauthentic on that basis. Uh, whereas the Gutenberg Bible added prologues to um, each of, to James, two letters of Peter, three of John, and Jude. Uh, and so in that case, its source really was quite different uh, from the Paris Bible. And um, if we go to the next slide, um, this is, um, you know, as I began to think about these differences in shape and structure between the Paris Bible and the Gutenberg Bible, 
it really raised the question of what did Bibles of the 14th and especially 15th century look like uh, pre-Gutenberg Bible. I wanted some body of comparative material. Uh, now, in the mid-1980s, I, I really couldn't have done this, but in recent years, uh, a great many digitizations have been made by libraries in many different places, continue to be made, and after um, successive rounds of online searching, uh, ordering scans of microfilms from the project known as the Hill Monastic Manuscript Library, um, the poor quality of some of which can hardly be exaggerated, uh, pure begging in cases where a friendly curator in the library just said, well, we will scan it for you, and we'll put it up online, and others where we'll do it, but you'll have to pay for it. A combination of all of those, um, I've put together a group of um, something over 50 Vulgate Bibles, uh, definitely written in the 15th century, many with dated colophons, and essentially all from Germany, Austria, and Bohemia. And um, along the way, I've looked at a considerable number of 14th century codices, uh, and considerable more, even more 13th century. So for the first time, we can make comparisons and have some basis for thinking about how the printed Gutenberg Bible is like and is unlike its handwritten contemporaries including a number that were written well after the invention of typographic printing. And so if we go to the next slide, yes, this one, uh, the one before the Heidelberg uh, manuscript. Uh, these are just a few slides to show the wide range of hands and variations in level of luxury or formality of these 15th century manuscript Vulgate Bibles. Uh, which go from high luxury and careful book hands to cursive book hands, which presumably indicate private or small circle copies written for the use of the writer or a small group of um, people who um, had no problem with that handwriting. And, you know, in the Heidelberg, very handsome um, uh, Prague uh, Bible, early 15th century, the could be called a Corsiva Libraria, the Germans call it a Bastarda, you might even call Bohemian Bastarda. We go to the next one, the um, famous giant Bible of Mites uh, uh, from the Ducal Library of Gotha, now the Library of Congress on permanent display is the giant Bible of Mites dated 1453. Um, well, I put Mites in quotation marks there because um, I looked at it last summer. I took a considerable number of sort of off-the-cuff uh, photographs of it and um, uh, made extensive notes, took them back to Princeton, and I showed them to my friend, colleague, Eric. And um, after a little bit of discussion, Eric said, you know, this, this isn't nice. It's Cologne. It's Cologne, and it is Cologne, and there's no doubt in the world that it's Cologne. And um, anybody dealing with 15th century illumination could have said it. I mean, it's really just a matter of looking at some reproductions of other major Cologne illuminated Bibles. This isn't the best example of showing this very particular Cologne style of maybe the late 
1440s into the 1450s, so mm -hmm. rather restricting the time. If you go to the next slide, yeah, here is the, uh, the so-called Arenberg Bible at the Getty Museum, uh, Ludwig Manuscript. Uh, uh, not dated, but datable to Cologne, here for 1450. Uh, um, the um, illumination style of this is extremely close, I mean, more or less identical, not to this slide, but to um, other, well, particularly this, this little uh, gilt leafy treatment, the form of that, um, to um, Cologne, and, and that's where that's where the Bible is written. Um, if we look at the next slide, this is a, a favorite. This is we just love to have this. Uh, it, in Stuttgart is another Cologne Bible of Kirka 1453, less luxurious, written on paper. Um, I'm going to leave out everything about format and paper size. Now the hand, the hand of the Arenberg Bible was a uh, the uh, hand that is hybrida. This is that same hand. If you just want to go back and then again, um, and, uh, uh, to um, the Getty and then the Stuttgart. It's essentially the same hand. It looks very different here because of the wider spacing between the lines. And it just creates, whether that's you know, literally a humanist symptom or not, I don't know, but it, but it could be. Uh, if you go to the next slide, um, this is a, in Leipzig, very interesting manuscript, uh, Kirka 1460. Uh, what you don't see is the scale uh, of this, um, is that this is a single column, which is rather rare, but royal folio, so the same page size as the Gutenberg Bible. And um, this hand must be relatively strikingly large because this has 38 lines on the page, whereas the Gutenberg Bible, which we think of as quite a large font, has 42. And uh, so I only know it by pictures and without seeing the real thing. I think you really, to get the um, kind of bizarreness of it. It's, it's sort of like a large print version of the Bible. And if we go to the next, um, well, here we're getting to a much lower level of uh, formality. Uh, there, um, you know, I mean, you can sort of argue about whether you call it a book hand or not. It's very regularly written, but there, is, there aren't line rules in it. Uh, and um, written in Austria, dated Colophon 1476, as you see, um, uh, including the day of the week, uh, uh, after the Feast of Bartholomew. And then if you go to the next one, uh, this is uh, kind of the more or less the lowest level you find, um, but with the uh, scribe name, naming himself, he was from Svetl in Lower Austria, uh, really is a cursive book hand. Um, if we go to the next slide, these are not good quality slides. This <coughs> and the next, and maybe just go back and forth between them. This is the Bible that on the second page of your handout, the um, Butzbach Bible, now Giesen, uh, written in Mainz in 1454. So this is, in terms of Bible making, in Mainz, it's an absolute contemporary of the Gutenberg Bible. 
And so I've given its layout here. And so if you keep your pages separately, you can put it alongside both the Gutenberg Bible and the Paris Bible. And so you see Gutenberg Bible is not like the Paris Bible, Witzbach Bible is not like the Gutenberg Bible, and it is not like the Paris Bible. But it's more like the Gutenberg Bible than it is like the Paris Bible. Um, and, um, um, and in fact, it's the same format, that is royal folio paper, as the Gutenberg Bible. And in fact, its paper stock is one of the paper stocks of the Gutenberg Bible. So in one sense, physically, they're very close together. Um, textually, they're really independent of each other. Um, and um, uh, there are two places in that Gießen Bible on your handout um, uh, where its exemplar um, derived at least in part from a pre-Paris Bible. That is, we don't really know its exemplar, the exemplar, the exemplar, how far back you take it. Uh, and one, if you look in Witzbach Bible at um, um, Chronicles after Kings, uh, following books of Kings, Chronicles, it doesn't have the prayer of Manasseh, which is um, apocryphal and really rather mystery of why it's in the Bible at all. Uh, which was a um, standard feature of the Paris Bible, but in the Paris Bible it was written, it was simply written as the final lines of uh, the last chapter of Second Chronicles. Uh, now if you go to the next slide along, so here is a Paris Bible, and I just put a little bit of yellow, and here is where the, within uh, chapter 36, Second Chronicles, there is um, Dominus Deus Omnipotens Patrimastorum, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, simply written as the next words along at the end of Second Chronicles. And some later reader in Browning sort of recognized, yeah, that's a little bit different. And so they put a little, um, a little curved bracket around it and extended it down to the bottom of the line. Um, so that, um, its um, absence in the Butzbach Bible is, I think, indicative, um, sort of like the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. Uh, and if we go to the next slide, we see the Gutenberg Bible's treatment of the prayer of Manasseh, where it's elevated, and it's given a three-line initial, and space for a lengthy titulus, and um, three line being more than a chapter, less than a prologue, so it's sort of like a special item. And then an equally lengthy um, subscription at the end of it, uh, before you get to the prologue to the Ezra books, um, which follow. And so, it's like the Paris Bible in having the prayer of Manasseh. It's unlike the Paris Bible in its treatment of the prayer of Manasseh. And in the Butzbach Bible, I will just say, if you look at um, the paragraph for Isaiah and Jeremiah Lamentations, the absence of Baruch is um, really is the transmission of a much older tradition uh, because um, there was a long period 
when Baruch was very rarely included in Vulgate Bibles. And it sort of becomes a little more common. You find it in um, many, but by no means all, uh, 12th-century Italian giant Bibles. But in the um, Paris Bible, it's a necessary element. Uh, and um, so there's the, ex you know, really, Butzbach Bible, Gutenberg Bible, you have two books which are as contemporary as can be, but their um, <coughs> relative ages in terms of exemplar are completely independent of their using the paint, same paper stock to write the same thing at the same time as another is being said in movable type. Um, and um, I've also, this is really just for your um, general information, so to speak. I also, in the last column of your handout, I just kind of summarized, and it is useful. Again, I, I've done this for all 50 Bibles in my group and many others, to summarize the differences between your Bible and a Paris Bible in terms of prologues omitted, so-called cur prologues omitted, other prologues added, any other biblica, whether added or omitted, and um, uh, and any changes in sequence from the Paris Bible. And with those just sort of four different elements, you get a very handy layout by which you can see how the Bibles um, uh, differ or fall right into the Paris Bible format. Um, now, Generally speaking, um, um, the, the Paris Bible order, book order, became quite widespread in the 13th century, as did its chaptering, and yet not nearly so much in England as, as, as on the continent. I've been looking at and have, will be looking at, uh, and have many descriptions of 13th century English Vulgate Bibles, including those very good descriptions in Neil Kerr's medieval manuscripts in British libraries, it is very rare to find an English 13th or 14th century Bible which simply um, follows the Paris Bible, whether in terms of prologues, very often uh, different book order in several places. And um, everyone I've seen so far and will be seeing, they, they all, they're all non-Paris-like. It's as if Paris wasn't wanted in England in quite the same way that it became somewhat acceptable in Northern Italy or in Bologna in particular. Um, now, um, so we, when we look at uh, this, this, my little assembled group of 15, 15th century manuscripts, one thing we see which, is sh which shows up in these summaries of prologues of both the um, Gutenberg Bible and the Witzbach Bible is that the Paris Pro Bible prologue set, that Kerr 1 through 64, um, did not become nearly as fixed in the later Middle Ages. Uh, it, it kind of went away. Uh, in my group of 50, there are only two Bibles that have exactly and only the Kerr prologues. And one of these is volume two only, so we can't be 100% sure that it's true for the first volume, although it's, it's really quite likely. And the curious thing is neither of them looks at all like a Paris Bible. Both are low-level, 
Austrian cursive hands, very utilitarian books, written on paper, uh, no marked uh, lineation, one of about 1400, one of about 1430, and one of the two follows the Paris order and prologues, and yet it has these capitula lists uh, before the books of kings, chronicles, gospels, uh, and um, uh, in the capitula, uh, these short chapter summaries, uh, very common before the Paris Bible, and the Paris Bible intentionally excluded all capitula. Um, and um, so, although it has that form of a Paris Bible, I think it's uh, very unlikely that its exemplar was anything like a Paris Bible. Um, and um, both the omission of Kerr prologues and the addition of other prologues are very common features in this 15th century, at least German group. Um, in France, one can hardly find that Bibles were written in the 15th century though two that I found seem to be copied from um, fine Carolingian Bibles, and uh, so are just completely jumping centuries earlier than the Paris Bible. Um, uh, um, I found uh, Bibles that have um, almost all the curve prologues, but then they can add 13, 18, 22, 23, 24. The, um, Giant Bible of Cologne, ex Mainz, has 57 prologues added. Uh, and um, uh, the, um, something happened. You know, Paris Bibles can continue to be used in the 15th century. And it's, uh, that is read, uh, valued, as we know from inscriptions in various copies. Uh, they had significant monetary val value. Um, one of the manuscripts I found in Stuttgart is a very handsome uh, Paris Bible, mid-13th century, uh, which uh, was very probably uh, in the library of Mainz Cathedral at just the time the Gutenberg Bible was being printed. So that's a case of sort of an exemplar that could have been, and it wasn't. Um, and so I want to conclude by, um, uh, it's, uh, basically I think the concept of the Paris Bible had died by the 15th century, certainly in Germany, and we can't show that it lived anywhere else. So I want to conclude by going back to the question about which I had been much too positive in 1987, of whether the Gutenberg Bible is, is or is like, so to speak, the Paris Bible text, the one sentence of mine that I particularly disliked. Um, and indeed, Heinrich Schneider showed that many Paris Bible readings were transmitted to the Gutenberg Bibles, exemplar, exemplars. Uh, but there is a broader, if less sharply defined, question that this doesn't, um, isn't adequate to handle. And that is in this matter of specific readings, characteristic readings where I say, yes, Paris, we need to look at both sides of the coin. There are indeed many places where the Gutenberg Bible followed the Paris textual tradition, but also many where its text is an older reading, preceding the format of the Paris Bible tradition. And to begin to assess this, we need to have a fixed sample. We have to just make a list almost arbitrary of both situations, what we might call both positive and negative readings. In forming a fixed list, then we can go through a group of Bibles and simply tick them off. And it doesn't give us any particular answer but it ensures that when we're thinking about the question, we're always using 
the same body of data. And if you start making special case for one or leaving out another, the, the result has to be confusion. And um, I've indeed been doing this with my 15th century group. And um, just last two slides, if you go to the next one. Well, you know, let's, yeah, Deuteronomy. Yeah, okay, I think Deuteronomy, th this will do, um, although it's, uh, you'll have to use your eyes a little bit. Here is the um, uh, end of chapter 27 of Deuteronomy where um, uh, Moses is um, 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 prescribing a list of um, curses if you do this, sort of based roughly on the, on the commandments uh, which the um, priests or Levites were to read out before um, the assembled tribes and after each one was read out they should say Amen and there are a long uh, list of these um, maledictions and um, uh, in actually let's go to the um, um, Paris Bible first in that long list of maledictions is one that says um, it's right here, where it ends, maledictus qui. Um, you know, cursed be he who sleeps with the wife of his neighbor. And everybody says, um, amen. Um, amen to that. And then go to the one before, the Gutenberg Bible, and um, the verse isn't there. Well, uh, that's an interpolation of the Paris Bible. And so, whether the Gutenberg Bible's exemplar or the exemplar of the exemplar, whether it had it and expunged it or didn't have it at all, um, it's one of those cases where the Gutenberg Bible gives a negative reading, but we don't actually know what the situation was. Uh, but um, it's, uh, in fact, every Bible I look at now, I go to Deuteronomy. 27 and see whether <laughs> sleeping with your neighbor's wife is, <laughs> is a defined bad thing or just implicitly a bad thing. Um, and um, now, so fundamentally, in these last couple of years, I've invested a lot of time in uh, trying to increase my knowledge, but definitely decreasing my confidence. And what I wrote in 1987, I would never say now that it would have been surprising if the Gutenberg Bible had not been a Paris Bible text. I don't know that it is a Paris Bible text. I don't think we even have defined the right way to think about that question. And I'm not sure it's even exactly a useful question. Um, those negative readings just have not been taken into account. And so we don't have a yardstick. Um, I would say that the Gutenberg Bible is like its 15th century contemporaries uh, in being unlike most of them, because in general they are all unlike one another. The Paris Bible standard had dissipated, and no new standard had taken its place. Uh, to paraphrase Jerome, in the 15th century there were as many Bibles as codices, and that is until the Gutenberg Bible appeared and created, quite arbitrarily, a new standard which is the next standard after the Paris Bible, the next and only one until you get to the Clementine Vulgate. Thank you.